Um, this summer, we've been working through a number of the Psalms together, as most of you know who, who have been here on a regular basis. Uh, it's been a summer in the Psalms, so to speak. It's been an interesting summer for us, I think. We've had a lot going on as a church. We've, we've already talked about it a couple times this morning. We've worshipped with Berlin on several Sunday mornings, Berlin Presbyterian, and we've been talking about, uh, we've had a couple Q&A times to talk about considering this prospect of coming together with Berlin as what, to form one new church. And you all have had a lot going on as well in your personal lives. And as we come to the end of our summer in the Psalms, and I reflect back on what I've learned through uh, various sermons and spending time reflecting on these passages together, there are a number of different themes that emerge. I'm sure that many of you, each of you, would have your own list of things that you have been impacted by from God's Word and, and that have spoken to you as we've worked through the Psalms in these recent months. But there are a few things that came to my mind, for instance. Um, one was the Lord's vigilant protection and care for his people. That's something we've come across again and again, that the Lord is watchful. He's not unaware of his people, but he's constantly caring for us, even when we don't feel it or see it. Uh, the importance of hoping and trusting in our triune God through trials and troubles. We've had occasion to talk about that and pray about that already this morning, that in the midst of trials and troubles, where do we turn? We turn to our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, thirdly, the significant role that we play in one another's lives for our faith and perseverance. The Psalms often are corporate in nature. They're very personal at times, but there's, they're, they're made for worship, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well. And so the importance that we play as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and helping one another persevere to the end and to walk with the Lord on a day-by-day basis, encouraging each other and counseling each other. You all do that for one another all the time. And so we've encountered that, the important role that that plays in our faith as we've worked through the Psalms. We've seen it, that it was important for the life of Israel as a nation and for them as a church, and it's important for us as well. Then also, and you know, lastly, the overarching promise of redemption in the gospel that anchors us through this life. I, I, that sounds a bit vague and general, but I think it's something we come back to again and again. What's going to anchor us in the midst of storms? What's going to keep us steady as we walk through this life? And it's the redemption, the, the promise of Christ to us in the gospel. And so we've had occasion to consider that again and again. This summer's also been a summer filled with new, new and unique challenges and some very difficult trials. On the challenge front, we've had this prospect again of joining with Berlin down the road in the near future. It's an entirely unique experience. It's testing us in many different ways, testing our, our faith and our, and our patience, both corporately and individually. It's teaching us to be flexible and to, to focus on those central things, and we've, we've talked about that a lot. It's been important for us to see the big picture of God's plan as best we can, not just the elders and those who are going to meetings and things like that, but all of us to keep that as our center focus, what God is doing in us and through us. And the Psalms have helped us to ground ourselves in trusting the Lord and turning to him in worship together as we look at these things. We've also had to face suffering, intense, personal, heartbreaking suffering, valley of the shadow of death kind of suffering that brings us face to face with what we confess and with what we believe about life and death and about God's goodness and his love toward us. 
So our summer in the Psalms, I think, has helped us to turn toward the Father and to rest in his loving kindness to us in Christ Jesus. These things that I'm describing are worship. They are transacting with God. And I don't mean that in the sense of money, of course, or anything like that. But I'm thinking relationally. We're not simply learning facts about God. In fact, I bet most of what we're studying together as we've looked at the Psalms this summer are things that you've heard before, things that you knew. But we're learning to worship the Father through His Son, by His Spirit, and by seeking from Him the very things that He promises to deliver. We're learning to turn to Him and to receive what He promises. It makes perfect sense that these are acts of worship because, in fact, that's what the Psalms are for. That's what they were meant to be. They're meant, in many cases, as liturgy, to use the old-fashioned word. Liturgy meaning order of worship. They're intended to call forth a response of praise or thanksgiving or even lament. They're songs. They're literally songs that can be sung and that were sung in Israel. And in many ways, as we encounter them together, we're stirred in our souls and they change our tune to use a cliche or a well-known turn of phrase. You've probably used that phrase before with your child or a friend, or perhaps your spouse, that phrase, change our tune, though I would tell you to be careful when you tell your spouse that she needs to change her tune. Not that I've ever done anything like that, so rash. But that's what the Psalms do for us. They bring us to the Lord, and they give us a new tune or a new song, a song of praise and trust in our God. And I think Psalm 40 captures this, in a number of ways, a number of these themes, and it can help us to reflect on what we've learned this summer as we come to a close of our study in the Psalms. It helps us to reflect on God's ways toward us and our response to him. This psalm is a liturgy of thanksgiving. It's a liturgy of repentance, of assurance, and of trust in the abundant mercy and kindness of the Lord. And Psalm 40, to be honest, has also been very meaningful to me personally. And I've had occasion to turn to it time and time again as a reminder of God's grace in my life. So I want to look at Psalm 40 together. And we're not going to be able to cover every single verse today in detail. But my hope is that we will sort of whet your appetite and that you will desire to come back to it in your own time, to study it in depth and turn to it again and again. Maybe it will even become a personal favorite for you. But today what we're going to look at are three things from this psalm, three kind of big picture ideas. Again, I want this to be, in some senses, uh, looking back at all the psalms that we've studied together and some of the major themes, but I think there's three things that we can look at in this psalm that also remind us of what we've learned. So the three things are going to be three S's, just to help us since I don't have slides. The first is the salvation of the Lord or the uh, the salvation from the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord is the second one, and the song of joy from the Lord. So the salvation of the Lord, we're going to look at the salvation that draws our complete devotion. We're going to look at the steadfast love of the Lord, which we will consider the mercy and the loving kindness of God that anchors us in temptation and trial, and then the song of joy from the Lord. We will listen for the new song that our Savior God gives to his people. So first, we're going to look at salvation God is our rescuer. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 
Um, and then we'll talk about those. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David begins his psalm by describing God's saving work to rescue him from the very pit of destruction. What was this pit of destruction? Well, we don't know exactly. Was it sickness or death? Possibly. David faced that in his life. Danger of, could it have been danger? Threat of violence, war? Was it condemnation for his own personal sins and transgressions? We don't know for sure, but if you look back at the history of David's life, the fact is that all of those things were true for David at one point or another. But what I want us to notice is the way in which David describes the action in these first three verses of the psalm. Who is doing what? Well, if you look at what David's doing, firstly, he tells us. He says he's waiting patiently. He says he's crying out. And sort of by implication, he says he's sinking. He says he was in the miry bog with this idea of sinking and needing to be drawn up from the depths. So waiting, crying out, sinking. But then look at what God is doing and what David actually says that God is doing. He doesn't try to take credit, but he points to the work of God. He says, we see that God's very active in response to David's crying out, in response to his waiting upon the Lord. He's, God is inclining right at the beginning. We see he inclined to me and he heard my cry. God is leaning in to hear the cry for help. One of the commentators, Derek Kidner, says it might be better translated, he bent down to me, or he turned and listened to my cry. He says the word expresses the idea that someone's attention is arrested and riveted. God the Father stoops to his child. He leans in to listen and provide loving care. He isn't too busy or distracted. He isn't growing tired of our asking. He knows us and cares for our cries for help. The next thing he did was he drew David up. God does not just stoop low to us, but he draws us higher out of our misery and into his presence. Next, he sets my feet upon the rock, David says. This rescue is from sinking in despair now to standing firm. It's a complete reversal of his circumstances. He's no longer sinking, he's standing firm. He's not concerned anymore of the, of the sinking down. And he makes my steps secure. God continued to protect, his, he continued to protect and guard David in the, in the steps ahead. And then lastly, he put a new song of praise in my mouth, David says. And we're going to come back to that one in our third point, as I said earlier. So God is the one who takes action here in his work of salvation. And David makes the point that this kind of sovereign grace and unmerited favor from start to finish draws a response of fear and trust from the Lord's people. And you see that at the end of verse 3 and in verse 4. He says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. There's a response to this great work of salvation. It doesn't leave people to ignore it or 
to make no response to it. Blessed is the man, he says in verse 4, who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. And there's both a promise in those verses and a rebuke. To trust in the Lord, the promise brings, he says, blessing. To trust in the proud or to turn to the proud brings disaster. Turning to Derek Kidner again for help with that word, the proud, what does it mean there to turn to the proud? He calls that a a lie. Well, he says the word the proud can be translated as empty blusterers, those who are clamoring for attention and even our devotion. I don't think of people, really, although that may be possible, but the things of life that make promises to us that they'll satisfy us. They clamor for our attention. They make promises they can't keep, and they, in a sense, write checks that they can't cash. They offer to us a short-term quieting of our inner angst. Things will be better if we'll trust in these other things, these false salvations, false saviors. But in the end, they prove themselves to be empty and powerless to deliver peace. You've probably experienced this in your own life. You've found something that seems to satisfy you for a while. It quells the lack of inner peace you have, the worry and anxiety, but it doesn't last. These things return when we turn to anything other than the one who can truly save us and deliver peace. And that's why David says these things are outright liars. They often are cloaked in deceptively alluring apparel. But he says if you go after these things, these proud things that promise, these empty blusters, you're going after a lie. It's not going to work. It's not going to satisfy or save you. If God is the decisive actor in our rescue, we cannot bank on anyone or anything else. It made me think of, for instance, a child who falls off their bike, maybe in the neighborhood, and badly tears up their knees. This actually happened to me uh, about a week ago at our house, so the memory, uh, the example's fresh in my mind. And it happened with one of my daughters. I didn't scrape my knee, my daughter did. And uh, I don't ride my bike around the neighborhood too often, although um, I'd like to more. But she came in bleeding and crying out and wounded and scared. Kids often think these things are life-threatening, don't they? But Dad had the remedy. I had what she needed. It was just a bad scrape. She needed water, clean water and soap and disinfectant. had bandages. And probably most importantly, I had kind words and assurance that it really would be okay. But, fearful and unsure, she at first wouldn't let me help her. She was upset and she ran up to her room to hide and to cry. And the healing couldn't begin until she turned to me and trusted in my care. But we do this all the time with our Heavenly Father, more than we think. When we sin, especially if it's one of those struggles that we've had before or that often trips us up. Maybe it's the kind of sin that really bothers you and it makes you discouraged or even ashamed of yourself. Our first instinct is to hide from God. Think of like Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned, they hid from the Lord. But David says no. He says turn to him in these moments because this salvation that is offered is for those who need saving. Forgiveness is for sinners. And so we turn to him, and we even run to him. 
for help when we sin. It's okay to be desperate with God. It's okay to cry out to Him. It's okay if you don't feel strong enough. And if it makes you feel, if you're a guy, maybe it makes you feel a little less manly to do that. Or if you're trying to be capable and keep track of everything you've got going on in your life, the burdens, you seem so busy and you, you, don't, have a, you don't feel like you have time to be weak. I know I've felt like that at times. But it's okay. It's okay to be desperate with God. It's okay to cry out, to run to Him. He calls us like a father to His children to come and find in Him the remedy that we need. When we're at our most desperate, we should turn to the one who cares for us more than anything. David tells us then in verse 5 about God's many thoughts toward us and his wondrous deeds. Again, continuing to talk about this great salvation, he says, not only has God done these great things in the past, but he has great plans for us in the future. He says, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us, he says, you have multiplied, O Lord my God. It makes me think of, when I think of the future and these thoughts that God has for us and toward us, from past all the way into eternity, it makes me think of Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul says that the Father has predestined us in love. God's predestining work from eternity past into the future is a work of love. And the multiplication of his thoughts and his deeds toward David and Israel, that speaks to the intensity of God's affection for them and for us, for those of you who are trusting in Christ, who are his his, his affection for you is intense. And it speaks also to the abundance of his grace. God's grace, he has it in abundance. He's not stingy. Again, this is something we've had occasion to see again throughout our studies in the Psalms this summer. God has kept us in the past. And we can look back and see his faithfulness. But this also functions as assurance that he will keep us in the days ahead whatever we face. So David has a response to God's faithfulness, and that comes to us here in verse 6, and 6 through 8. Such grace as this, such love, draws forth complete devotion and commitment from David. He says, in sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. This phrase, open ear, seems to suggest something similar to what we pray when we say, Lord, give them ears to hear. Maybe you've prayed that for someone who you've been sharing the gospel with. Maybe you've prayed that as we've come together to listen to the word, to hear a sermon. Lord, give me the ears. Give me ears to hear what you have to say. And David says God has done that for him. And because of that, he says, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Your law is written in my heart. Your law is within my heart, he says in verse 8. He says that burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. And then he actually says in verse 7, when he says, Behold, I've come, that it is in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. It's interesting to say that it's been written of him in the, in the scrolls, in the, in the sense, in the word, in the Bible. David was the king, and the king, in a sense, stands for the people. And here is a king who is now saying, I'm devoted to the Lord. I'm ready to listen. My ears are open. 
He's given me open ears. I'm ready to be conformed to the will of the Lord. And this, in a sense, represents the people of Israel. To have a king who was ready to do the will of the Lord and be conformed to God's will. That was a sign of God's salvation of his people. That was grace to the people. That was God promised work of salvation throughout the, the grand scheme of, of redemptive history coming to pass. And so he can say the fact that he's here and willing to do God's will is a grace, grace not just to him but to the people. And this is what God's seeking from his people. And it is also what God promised to his people. He promised true worshipers. And he's seeking true worshipers, both then and now, thousands of years ago in the time of David and today. He's seeking true worshipers, those who respond to him and to his call and to his drawing us out of the pit. That's what we've been considering, as we said earlier, as we've studied the Psalms. David says right here, interestingly, at the height of the Old Testament sacrificial system, that sacrifices and burnt offerings are not ultimately what God delights in or requires from us. These are only shadows that point Israel to the new covenant promise of the Messiah, the one who would come and write the law of God on their hearts. I don't know if it was last week or, or several weeks back, but Lee mentioned that in, in uh, the book of Luke, early in the book of Luke, uh, I think it's around chapter 2, that Jesus comes into the synagogue and he reads from the scroll. And like this, saying, I've, I've come to do your will, God. Behold, I have come. He says, this is fulfilled in your hearing, as he read from the prophet Isaiah, a similar kind, type of passage that was prophesying the Messiah. And he claims there in the synagogue to be the fulfillment of these things. The one, the one who, he was the one who would write the law of God on their hearts, the true Messiah. So David is speaking prophetically of another king, a king that would come in his line, a Davidic king, who would delight to do the will of God. And we see this actually fulfilled in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to read that passage briefly. We don't have time to study this in, in detail, but I, again, commend it to you and to your study. It's actually a passage that we've uh, studied on a number of occasions because it's really important in understanding the work of Christ in the gospel. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, so that's the shadow we mentioned earlier, it can never be the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, these burnt offerings that David is referencing in Psalm 40. That these cannot make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And it's interesting as the writer of Hebrews quotes this Psalm 40, he says, he, he translates this as, uh, in quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, he translates up in verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me. In the same way we said that when David says in Psalm 40 that you've given me ears to hear in a sense, you've awakened my ears, you've, you've opened, you've given me an open ear so that I might hear your will and do it to be conformed to your will. Jesus did that by the body that was given to him in the incarnation. By becoming man, he was given that body to do the will of God, to offer it up once for all as the sacrifice for sins, to bring this great salvation promised to Israel and the Messiah and fulfilled in the new covenant and the gospel in Christ. So this salvation would, would come through blood, the blood of the Savior King who was the fulfillment of the law of God and also the fulfillment of the promise of God. And through such a salvation as this, we are sanctified once for all through his body. So we also, today, receive the promise that God will write his law in our hearts. And we will delight, like our Lord, to do his will as we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. So back to Psalm 40, David's response continues. His response in faithfulness, to the faithfulness and salvation that he's been talking about comes out in verses 9 and 10 in what sounds like a mission of praise. He's on mission, but it's a mission to extend the praise and worship of God. He says he's going to preach it, he says he's going to sing of it, and he's going to speak it without restraint. God's deliverance, his salvation to the great congregation, he's not going to conceal it. The second thing that I want us to look at in this psalm is the steadfast love and mercy of the Lord. We want to do that as well. We want to speak it. We want to preach and sing and tell of God's work in our lives without restraint. But what about life? What about troubled days and endless worries that seem to bog us down? What if again I feel overtaken by my sins and failures? It seems to happen here to David in these latter verses. I have to tell you that I still feel at times like I'm sinking. I, like maybe like you, wonder what is going to happen with my life and in my life. What might happen to my family or to my friends? Will my life be snatched away by despair and loss after all in these darker times? Sometimes life can feel like a boxing match with rounds. One round ends, and th- seems th- things seem okay for a little bit, but it isn't too long until we are thrown back into the ring. And that seems like that's what happened to David here in verses 12 through 15. We see that trouble has come for him again. David feels surrounded on every side by evil beyond number. And when he looks into his own heart, he sees the same. He says that evils have encompassed him and his iniquities have overtaken him. He cannot see. They're more than the hairs of his head and his heart fails him. I wonder if you've ever experienced this. You look out on the world, 
You hear stories of terrible hate. Maybe you personally experience intense suffering. Or maybe in the past you remember days of shame or violation. It's hard to consider those types of things. It's heavy. It's discouraging. And sometimes it can seem that the world is filled with evil. Just like David says here, encompassed by evils beyond number. Sometimes we look into our past or even our present days and we find pain and shame or abandonment, sometimes even from people we thought we could depend upon and trust in. Our lives seem to be decisively in those moments marked by our sorrows. Or at times we look into our own hearts and lives and we see sins and failures that seem to overtake us And we cannot see a way out or see the way forward. And our hearts fail us. Our sins run so deep. Can I really be made right with God in his sight? And the question that comes is, what is the remedy when we're surrounded by trouble or drowning in the despair of our own sin and failure? Where can David turn once again when he feels his heart failing? Well, I hope this summer in the Psalms has helped you know instinctively the answer to such a question. But when we look at verse 11, we see, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. David says that he puts his confidence in the unrestrained mercy and steadfast love of the Lord. I'd like us just to look at those two things briefly in the second point. First, unrestrained mercy. The you here, when he says, as for you, O Lord, it's just like, as you read it there, it sounds emphatic, and it's meant to be. Once again, David's transacting with God. He's not beating around the bush or hiding. He's going right to God and saying, you, I need from you this unrestrained mercy. Don't hold it back. He knows he desperately needs it. And his circumstances suggest a flood of evil encompassing him and trouble. But what David looks to is the floodgates of God's mercy. The answer to the all-encompassing evil is the flood of God's mercy. Because God, once again, is going to act. He's not going to ration out his mercy a little bit here and a little bit there, like a stingy father who's tired of emptying out his wallet to the constant needs of his family and Not that I know what that feels like. But instead, he will unleash his mercy like a flood. He's not going to be stingy. He's not going to get frustrated. But he unleashes his mercy like a flood. He will give and give and give of himself. And this is shown most clearly, of course, in the sending of his only son. And as Romans 8 says to us, If he has given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, how will he not also, along with him, give us all things? The second thing that he turns to is the steadfast love and faithfulness that will ever preserve me. This steadfast love is an important Hebrew word. In the original Hebrew, it is the word hesed. I'm probably not pronouncing it right, and I don't know how to spell it. But it's an important word that's used very frequently, and it's a word that God uses about himself. It expresses the commitment of God to pour out his goodness upon his people. 
Let me quote Sinclair Ferguson here in describing what hesed is like. He says, one of the big words in the Old Testament scriptures, hesed, it appears around 250 times in the Old Testament and with reference to God himself dominantly. He is a God of loving kindness. When God revealed himself to Moses, he said that he was a God full of this hesed, this loving kindness and goodness in Exodus 34, 6. It's not simply, Ferguson says, it's not simply love or kindness in an ordinary sense. It means God's deep goodness expressed in his covenant commitment, his absolute loyalty, his obligating of himself to bring to fruition the blessings that he has promised, whatever it may cost him personally to do that. As we've studied the Psalms together this summer, we have again and again encountered this unwavering commitment of God to his people. His unrestrained love and kindness that's offered to us in the gospel. This does not leave us unchanged, however. It calls forth more than simple compliance. Rather, it draws us to complete devotion to the Father who lavishes his loving kindness upon us. The Son of God who reconciles us to God once for all by his own blood and the Spirit, the one who writes God's law upon our hearts and brings us into union and fellowship with himself. Our response to such promises can only be a new song, a new song of praise. And that brings me to my final point, the song of joy. Again, you see in verse Three, David says in response to this faithfulness that he put, he being God, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. He says again, if you look at the end of the psalm in verses 16 and 17, but may, I'm going to look at particularly at verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May, they, may those who love your salvation say continually, almost like a song repeated over and over again. Say continually, great is the Lord, describing this new song that has been given. A little story, when I told Lee uh, a while back that I was going to be preaching this week on Psalm 40, he jokingly reminded me that I would uh, need to make reference to Bono and the band U2, um, that I might even have Bono come up here and, and, and sing, because they have a song entitled Psalm 40. And uh, we also used to have a banner, uh, as many of you will know up here, for the, that was actually the school's banner, that uh, made reference to Bono, and that's not here, the one time we actually reference him in a sermon, which is ironic. But <laughs> I wish it was here. It would, it would be uh, helpful. But anyway, the, they, apparently at the end of all their concerts, they sing this song that is entitled Psalm 40. And the chorus goes, I will sing, sing a new song, and it's repeated over and again, over again. Many of you probably know it. I will sing, sing a new song. And I have to admit, when I was preparing the sermon, it was kind of running through my head on a number of occasions. I don't know much about U2's theology, and I'm, I'm sure some of you who are, uh, who are super devoted fans to them musically might be able to inform me on that. Um, but I think there's something to this idea of ending with those words, that I will sing, sing a new song. Ending a concert, ending more importantly, I think for us, our summer in the Psalms. 
our time to consider these promises and these truths, to see how the God that we love, that we are devoted to, and more importantly, who is devoted to and loves us, how we respond in worship, how we transact and turn to him. We sing a new song. And I think there's something to ending with that. In verse 16, where David says that he will rejoice, he says that those who seek the Lord will be glad. Doesn't say that everything will feel good and that their situations will be perfect. Of course they won't. In fact, he's just told us of the troubles, the threats, the constant difficulty that he seems to be going through. And yet he says they will be glad and they will continually say, great is the Lord. And it will be in a sense their new song. Why? Why are they able to do this? Why are they able to face troubles? Why are we able to face such challenges and troubles and difficulties? Why are we even able to face our own sinfulness with songs, a new song of joy and gladness? Well, for them it was because, he says, he tells us why, he says in verse 16, that they loved your salvation those who love your salvation, the salvation that he told us about in the first 10 or so verses and talked about again in verse 11, they have loved this salvation. They've rejoiced in that. So how can we, we must love the salvation. It needs to bring us joy. The, the ocean that we've just sung about, the ocean of God's love, that if we could fill the ocean with the love of God, or if we could fill the ocean with ink and write in the skies the love of God, that we would drain the ocean dry. It's not enough to tell of the depths of God's love. It overwhelms us. It ought to. It overwhelmed David. And in their deepest troubles and sorrows and sin, and in our deepest troubles and sorrows and our sin, deeper still goes the anchor. The anchor of Christ. He himself is our anchor. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, paying the penalty for our sin and offering to us that death has been conquered and we may have eternal life and fellowship with him forever. That anchor that goes deeper still is promised to never be removed. It will never be removed. And so it's my hope that in our studies in the Psalms, that this will cause us to come away singing a new song. Even in the face of sin, even in our sorrows, that we will turn to our good Father, repenting, trusting, believing with faith in Him, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see with thanksgiving this great salvation that will be washed in this flood of unrestrained mercy, and that we will rest in his loving kindness to us, his deep goodness that he promises that at any cost he will bring to pass what he has promised to do. The applications that I have for you today are simple. Just would encourage you to consider these things, to receive the steadfast love, the promises of the steadfast love of the Lord, of his mercy toward you, to sing the song of joy whether out loud or quietly in your heart. It's good, to, it's good to turn to the Lord. 
to transact with him, to, to experience that deep fellowship and relationship with him as you hear of his truth. Don't just go away having heard, but have the experience of turning to him and fellowshipping with him. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your mercy to us, it's new every morning. We've sung of your great faithfulness. We've sung of the depths of your love. We've sung that our only hope is the rock of ages that was cleft for us so that we might be hidden in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we sing these things, we are reminded of the reality of the truth of your work, your wondrous deeds to us in the past, specifically and most importantly in the gospel, and of the wondrous plans that you have for our future, not just for this life, but for forever, and that your thoughts toward us are many, for you care for us deeply. Lord, I pray that as we go away from here, it will not be my words that folks will remember, but that it will be the word of the Lord, because that's all that matters. So I pray that your wisdom, that your promises, that your truth will be planted deeply in the hearts of each one here, and that that is what we will take away, and that we will turn to you, to talk to you, to hear from you, to express our thanks, our praise, and our love for you and devotion to you. And would you send us out on mission? As we respond, may we be those who speak without restraint, that we would not hold back, but that we would speak of your deliverance at every opportunity that we get. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.